Dave Harden, today's guest, received the Presidential Award for Distinguished Service by President Trump in 2019 for sustained extraordinary accomplishment in foreign policy after being appointed in 2016 by President Obama to serve as Assistant Administrator of USAID. He shares insights about his superpower, understanding local people. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Dave, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation today. It's a thrill to meet you. Great, Devin. It's great to be here, too. I'm so excited. Well, you have had such an extraordinary career. Uh, there, there are a few people that I meet on the show that I really feel like the just genuine jealousy <laughs> over the career they've had. And I, but you're one where I just, I, I look at what you have done and I think, man, I wish I could have done that. That that, that would be such a joy. Um, but you, you spent most of your career at USAID. Uh, right. And what, you know, it's my favorite government agency. And, and you weren't just a career uh, flunky there. You, you had real responsibility throughout your career, big response. And then President Obama uh, appointed you to be an assistant administrator. And that, that title for people outside of the beltway doesn't mean a lot, but that means you were a big deal. And you had to be a point confirmed by the United States Senate. Right. And then, of course, uh, you, you continued to serve after that, serving that appointment at USAID, and President Trump awarded you, what was the award? Tell us about the award. So I, I got the highest award in the Foreign Service uh, for you know protecting and defending America from uh, from Donald Trump of all, yeah. of all people. Uh, but yeah. I was very honored to get that. And as you mentioned, uh, under the Obama administration, I was put up to be the assistant administrator for all democracy, conflict, and humanitarian assistance programs around the world. And I was confirmed by uh, all the Republicans and all the Democrats. Yeah, that, that's just wild. Uh, I mean, it's just such a such a great sign of of the respect that uh, you have in the world. Uh, but but to to be appointed by one president uh, and, and uh, recognized and awarded by an, uh, another from another party really speaks highly of of you. Um, now you're running a firm called Georgetown Strategy Group. It seems to be a a private initiative of doing USAID stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about Georgetown Strategy Group. So let's um, let's be clear that uh, there's a lot of government contractors that basically are the arm of uh, the government and implement some of their activities. And you would see that with you know with any number of uh, implementing partners through the U.S. Agency for International Development or USAID. That's not who we are. Um, what we do is uh, we don't actually do any government contracts. What we do is we look at, at crises and uh, trends in the world ahead, and we try to align um, capital, talent, and technology to blunt those to blunt those challenges that we will see that are coming down the road 10, 20 years down the road. So, you know, we see that with climate change, but we also see that with conflict or financial systems, et cetera. It's a fascinating, fascinating world that you're able to make that into a business. Uh, and the team you've assembled, it's an impressive team. Thank you. Uh, I was really surprised at the depth and breadth of the team that you've assembled 
in relatively short time since uh, you left USAID. Uh, no. So I, I'm impressed. But uh, give us a you know one example of a project you're working on at Georgetown Strategy Group. So part of the premise is that government can't do everything, uh, and governments around the world can't do everything, and so uh, we are we need to be able to leverage both public and private capital uh, for very focused outcomes. And I'm, I'm actually going to give you two examples. So um, we work with, with communities, companies, or countries that are in crisis. So I did a lot of work with the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of, of Technology, MIT, uh, Lincoln Laboratory, and we um, developed a system that is an early warning system for long-range climate impact. So USAID, for instance, had a famine early warning system that would be able to tell six to nine months out that this part of the Horn of Africa or Southern Africa or, or the Arabian Peninsula is going to have a food crisis. And that allows us to get there in advance and blunt that, uh, that, that food crisis. I did a lot of that and I oversaw that when I was with USAID. So at MIT, we developed the concept of the, uh, of the climate resilience early warning system that allows us to look out 10, 20 years um, to identify where climate impact will be at the one square kilometer level, and then to unleash both public and private capital that would help people decide to either mitigate or adapt to the changes that are coming their way. So it's a very highly focused uh, long-range forecasting system. So that's one example. I'm going to give you one other example. Um, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been mired in dysfunctionality forever. Um, but I uh, stepped in to help a group of investors, including Israeli investors, who are uh, investing in Palestinian tech startups. And the company that um, I was asked to help assist needed to get some turnaround because, you know, venture capital is a very high risk, high reward, high outcome undertaking. And so my team swooped in to help the Ramallah based team, uh, you know, try to turn it around and to grow. Now, in that instance, we ultimately failed. Um, COVID kind of crushed everything. Uh, in in 20, uh, I guess it was in the spring of 2020 at this point. But these are the examples of things that we try to do. Countries, companies, and uh, communities in crisis. Wow. What great work. What great work. And, and I'm sure you're drawing on uh, the experience you had at USAID. And, and one of the things that I want to just dig into a little bit, because it, it, it just sounds, I mean, so incredibly exotic, scary, dangerous, but uh, you helped reopen the uh, uh, embassy in uh, Tripoli yeah. uh, after after it was closed. Uh, my gosh, that, that's a scary time to be in Libya and you helped you know restart uh, USAID's programs there. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, you were right. It was dangerous and uh, and yeah, I mean, full stop. It was dangerous. So I flew in with Gene Kratz, who was the ambassador at the time, and we went in with a very big security detail. 
Um, Libya was still very much in the middle of its civil war. Gaddafi was still in power, but he had left Tripoli and the militias had taken over. This was in uh, 2011, in September of 2011. And so he arrived on the ground. It was extraordinarily dangerous. You know, the State Department doesn't have the appetite for these things anymore after Chris Stevens, who was a friend and a colleague, was killed in, uh, in Libya. But um, so we came in and my job was basically to kind of restart both the economy, the governing systems uh, and to blunt the humanitarian crisis. And what I was most proud about is, you know, normally in these kinds of crises, America wants to be seen as doing something. And so we bring in uh, the mercy ship or we fly in C-130s full of meds and you know, in many ways, it never works. It, it just is a, more of a symbol than than a solution. But what I was able to do is to draw down Libyan money that was held in escrow um, in, uh, in at the New York Federal Reserve, use that to jumpstart the private sector, both uh, equipment manufacturers and, and suppliers and repair folks and the pharmaceuticals to come in and immediately restart the healthcare system. And uh, it didn't cost American taxpayers anything. Um, it, we used Libyan money and we used the private uh, sector and we were able to turn around impact very, very quickly. By the way, that lesson is a lesson that's actually applicable in Afghanistan right now. Um, and I've been in, engaged in that effort uh, in Afghanistan about using their money, their resources to restart and, and blunt the humanitarian crisis. And, and actually, the New York Times just interviewed me the other day about the collapse of their banking structure and what some analogies would be, either in Libya or in Yemen. Well, it's fascinating to think about that. Let's talk a little further about what you would do uh, you know, given all of your experience in that region of the world, what would you do to help get things back on the right track in Afghanistan? So, the, I mean, let's begin with a couple baseline assumptions. I think America is tired of Afghanistan. Um, the, the, the pullout was chaotic and, uh, and, and in many ways, extremely suboptimal. I mean, I, I felt like that the Biden administration could have done much better uh, on Afghanistan. I personally probably wouldn't have left. I would have kept a small, small contingent there. But whatever. They made the decision. The exit was, was terrible. Um, and we are where we are right now. Um, in these kinds of crises, what, what folks may not fully appreciate is that a lot of it relates to the banking system and the collapse of the banking system and the, the collapse of the currency and the devaluation of the currency uh, and hyperinflation. All these things drive uh, humanitarian crises in a much more profound way than, than, than what is really, you know, the results, let's just say conflict. So I'm going to use Yemen as an example, and then I'm going to apply it to Afghanistan. When the currency devalues, it's not food aid that makes the difference. Okay, in the case of Yemen, you know, food aid comes in and helps 5% of the population, the most vulnerable set of the population. But 95% of the food imports are made by the private sector. So the private sector and the entire supply chain and the ports and all that has to work or else you'll see a collapse of uh, food prices and food commodities and you add into that hyperinflation and it just breaks everything. That's similar right now in the situation in Afghanistan. And so what I would do 
is because um, you're seeing a devaluation of the Afghani, you're seeing a, a breakdown in trading systems, you're seeing a move to other currencies, and you're seeing mass humanitarian crisis. What I would do is take some of the funds that the U.S. has control of um, in of Afghan reserve currencies that are in New York, put it into a trust fund that would be administered that would allow the private sector to trade uh, and to build up food stocks while the U.N. continues to provide assistance to the very most vulnerable. Well, that's a, it sounds like a great start. Uh, you also spent some time in Iraq. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience there and how that uh, has influenced your career. Yes, I spent 17 months in Iraq. Um, my job in Iraq was essentially to draw down our civilian uh, assistance presence at that time. This was also in 20, uh, I think it was 2012. Um, and so, you know, we had to carve back. Uh, all of our assistance programs, whether it was for infrastructure or electricity or banking support or trade support or support to civil society and, and, and hospitals. And at the same time, have the Iraqis begin to step up. Now, the Iraqis are not a it's not a poor country. Um, they have resources, they have capabilities, they have a big history. And so I worked very hard to get them to step up. And I would go so far to say this, look, we had a lot of politics around both of those wars. Um, and it was in many ways, you know, a polarizing set of issues for America. Set that aside for a moment. Where we are with Iraq right now is not, it, it, it's not bad. Um, you know, Iraq is functional. The outcomes are acceptable. Um, they retain independence. They, they certainly are independent of an Iran, for instance. Um, and so in many ways, I, Iraq has turned out to be a, a, an acceptable outcome. And Afghanistan, where we had a lot more reason to go in, was an absolute collapse. And, and I think part of the reason is is that at the end of the day, the Iraqis had to take ownership, they had to use their resources, and they had to decide whether they're going to succeed or fail on their own. And so there was more of a bottom-up approach as well as a top-down, but in Afghanistan, it was mainly a top-down approach, which yeah. failed. Yeah. Important lesson learned. Important lesson learned. Dave, uh, you have been extraordinarily successful. I've already confessed my explicit jealousy for the career you've had. But, but uh, you know, one of the things I've learned uh, over the years of visiting with people, great people like you, uh, is that there are lessons I can learn. And, and as I think about that, uh, I started asking folks uh, about their superpower. So, so, Dave, what is your superpower? So... Uh, I am running for Congress in rural Maryland, um, and I grew up in Trump country, what is now Trump country, right? I grew up in, in rural Maryland, um, and, you know, 50-plus years ago, it was even more rural. Um, and I feel that um, America is... is you know, is, is facing a very real inflection point about the future of our country. 
about the future of democracy, about the future of inclusion, which means, in my case, including rural people uh, into our economy. Um, it, 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 the inflection point also asks us whether rural communities will work in the future or will all of the economic and political power centralize in urban cores, right? And I think it's incredibly important that we make uh, all of America work, including the rural areas. Now, I spent 30 years working with forgotten communities uh, around the world where economic grievances drove political conflict. And what I learned is that you have to listen to the local people. That if you don't include the local people, you can't accomplish anything. And so, for instance, climate change or the pollution within the Chesapeake Bay or questions of overfishing, all of that surround my district. Um, and we have spent billions and billions of dollars trying to clean up the Chesapeake Bay from a top-down approach um, for the last 50 years without success. Because we failed to include the local people. We failed to include the watermen. So just like you cannot uh, save natural resources or create opportunity in a game park in Kenya if you exclude the villagers, just like you can't create um, or you can accelerate war in West Africa with diamonds, blood diamonds, if you exclude the locals, right? In America, in my district, in Maryland, and around the country, we must listen more closely to the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations and the concerns of local people if we hope to get um, beyond where we are in America today. So what I have learned, being both rural and from this area, and then being blessed to represent America um, around the world for, you know, practically 30 years, what I have learned, the superpower, if you will, is that understanding local people is key to driving outcomes for a better future for our country and for the world. That's a fascinating topic. You know, we were, I was talking to a, a fellow just uh, recently who, uh, well, uh, uh, two people, uh, a man and woman, uh, Meg Massey and Ben Robel, who wrote a book about uh, philanthropy and impact investing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were talking about the importance of participation from those that benefit. And it's exactly a parallel, I think, to what you're yeah. talking about, that, that uh, if we aren't engaging the people we hope to help in the solutions, uh, the solutions will fail. Uh, and so that that is a profound insight that you you offer as a, as your superpower. As you think about that, how would you encourage uh, other people to begin to implement that uh, participatory thinking about all of their activities at, at aimed at solving social issues? So you raised a great example, and that's impact investing, social impact funding. Um, and that is primarily private capital 
that goes in and is married to both public, some type of public support and some type of local civil society organization that is on the ground. And the point there is that um, this kind of social impact financing is designed to buy results, not process. And in the, for the example of, uh, let's say, cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay for the last 50 years, we've bought process. Okay? And, and it's easy to get hooked into that, right? You know, we want to clean up the bay. Environmentalists are good people. Um, the bay is polluted. Throw money at it, right? But at the end of the day, you're not buying results. In Afghanistan, we did not buy results. We bought process. Um, and... And I, so I would say, you know, including the local people, making sure we're being very rigorous about what results are, making sure that those results are, you know, clear, crisp and achievable, and then driving towards that is going to be the outcome. Now, social impact investing brings together, you know, private sector capital and the skill set that those folks have, recognizing that they don't have kind of the community-based understanding and don't work with, you know, local NGOs very effectively, but the NGOs understand the people. And then the government provides some kind of overlay, some kind of, you know, objective way forward. So to me, that's a great example of what's possible. And I think that that drive for results over politics or process has got to be how we think about the next decade. Yeah. Well, these are important principles. Uh, As you reflect on uh, how you came to this conclusion, uh, I wonder if you could just identify some examples of how you uh, implemented the, you know, local participation with success mm-hmm. uh, to help us see how we, how we make it work. So you, you did that a lot, I'm sure. I did. I did. And, and here's the bottom line. I, I spent a lot of my time um, on Israel Palestine issues. I was a negotiator with George Mitchell during the Obama administration. I held the economic file um, but in addition, I also r- ran the USAID programming in the West Bank and Gaza for practically a decade. That money is um, highly politicized. And no matter what you do, you know, 50% of the people are arguing against you and saying you did a lousy job, right? And so what I, what I really, really was able to focus on is if we are taking U.S. tax dollars and we're not building a school in the eastern shore of Maryland, and we're building it in the West Bank, then we got to be sure that we're building it in the West Bank. We got to be sure that it's being used for good purposes. We got to be sure that there's value added um, to the American taxpayer. We have to be sure that it's also linked in deeply to some higher level outcome, which is, you know, less conflict. Um, And so, Given the fact that I was under such heightened scrutiny so often on so many of these big issues, Libya, Iraq, you know, Yemen, uh, West Bank and Gaza, I really, and given the fact that I grew up in rural, you know, in in rural community where, you know, a hard-earned dollar is a hard-earned dollar, so you want to make sure you get something from it, um, I really, that was kind of my galvanizing, galvanizing point. And so what I have found is that if you are like, 
you know, if, if you want one good example, is that we were able to deconflict the northern West Bank between Israel and uh, and the Palestinians by simply creating a sustainable trading route, uh, you know, so that small businesses could sell their goods to the entire world. And that kind of virtual upcycle uh, of allowing economic opportunity to blossom helped create, um, you know, it lowered unemployment, it improved governance, it created uh, uh, jobs, it, it created private uh, capital that could be reinvested in other productive businesses, it lowered the risk that uh, militias would be disruptive. It, we bought, essentially, calm and stability in the Northern West Bank for a decade. Yeah, it's, it's a great example. Great example. It, by the way, it cost almost nothing. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's the benefit of, yeah. of, you know, this ground up approach. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today to end with our audience. It's just in- incredible. Some of the insights you've been able to share, you've had such a tremendous career before you go. I wonder if you just take a minute and tell people how they can connect with you, maybe learn a little bit more about your campaign and, and engage and support you in that. Well, thank you. Thank you. So it's hardenforcongress.com, H-A-R-D-E-N for congress.com. Check me out. Um, even though I grew up in rural uh, rural Maryland, my website embraced the fact that I worked all over the world. And I was not sure how that would translate. But what I found out is that the watermen and the farmers and the small business folks they say, they think, oh, you know what? This guy worked all over the world on economics and economic development. Maybe he learned something and he can help us. And he can help us do better. So it's hardenforcongress.com. Uh, my Twitter is, you know, at Dave underscore Harden. Um, and I need all the help we can get because you know what? We have the risk of rising authoritarianism. And we need to make sure our economics and our politics work for everybody. I know what it looks like when it's failed because I've worked in those places and I'm really committed to making sure we can build a better American uh, century for you know our kids and our grandkids going forward. So check it out, hardenforcongress.com. Thank you, Devin. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Dave. Really appreciate you being here and we wish you every success in your campaign. Thank you. Have a great day. All righty. All righty. Let's do some good. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.